I keep coming back to Montana Bible College because I so admire what I see happening here. Um, discipleship in community is, is how I would describe it. And that's a, a really rare thing, uh, even in the educational world. Uh, you students are very fortunate to be a part of this place and uh, might even say the faculty and staff are very fortunate to be here as well. I do want to invite you to eat lunch with me today. Uh, we're going to be in the room just off of the gym. And Danny, I hate to contradict what you had to say, but actually I'm not going to be talking about rural ministry at lunch. So all of you are invited, whether you want to do rural ministry or not. Um, I've been doing uh, traveling to campuses now for almost 30 years. And uh, there's a question that continually uh, I encounter all across the country as I talk with students. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today at lunchtime. Um, perhaps some of you here have come to this place with a heart for ministry. But maybe you wonder if you've been called by God. Um, and if you sense that you have been called, maybe uh, you wonder what God might be calling you to do. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, today at, at lunch. Um, I know some of you are here probably trying to sort out your future, and uh, we want to just uh, spend a few minutes uh, maybe trying to address that at lunchtime today. So, speaking of questions, um, Here's probably a question that you've never pondered. Uh, what is the farthest distance you have to drive to get to a McDonald's uh, if you're living in the continental U.S.? Um, what do you think? 107 miles. Uh, anybody want to guess where, what state? Close. Um, actually, a place uh, out in South Dakota. Uh, there's a little town called Isabel, and if you go west from Isabel out in the country a distance, you could put a flag down, and that spot would be 107 miles from McDonald's. Um, I was in Isabel not too long ago, and they were very proud to own this bit of trivia. <laughs> so. We like to call this RHMA country. Oops, not sure why that didn't show up. Um, RHMA, by the way, stands for Really Handsome Men's Association. Uh, <laughs> um, we send pastors and church planters to places like Isabel, 5,000 or less in size. Uh, some ask, well, why does RHMA go out in the middle of nowhere? And I would ask, is it nowhere if people are there? And it's somewhere, isn't it? Uh, because these are people whom God loves and people for whom Christ died. And Christ reminded us of this, didn't he, when he uh, told the story of the great shepherd who left the ninety and nine and went to great length to find that one lost sheep way out in the country. Um, Francis Schaeffer, I think, got it right when he said, in God's sight, there are no little people and no little places. 
So if you have an interest in serving in places like this, uh, I would love to talk with you. I'm not going to talk about it at lunchtime today, but I'd love to connect with you. I'm going to be around in the area all week. And uh, you can catch me on my cell phone, uh, text me, call me. Um, if I'm around the building, I'll be at the conference a little later this week. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about ministry uh, in a rural context. So we talked about the number one question that I think uh, students probably wrestle with. Uh, what do you suppose the number one issue is that people wrestle with once they get out in ministry? Uh, people that are in places like Isabel. Does it have to do with McDonald's? Has nothing to do with McDonald's, because uh, most of them don't go to McDonald's because it's too far away. Um, through conversations all across the country that I've been privileged to have with uh, pastors and church leaders in particular, um, I find that they rightly long for God to use them to have impact in their community for Christ, and even beyond their community, to have impact in the world. But then they start to think about their limitations. They start to ask questions like, just how much can God do in our little place? Uh, we're isolated, we're few in number, uh, we're just regular people, uh, our resources are limited. My wife and I sometimes in conversations at the dining table or kitchen table, we like to uh, kind of play the game. What would we do if we won a million dollars? And have you ever kind of asked yourself that question? Uh, Rox and I would like to think that we would give away a substantial part of that money, but, and, and by doing so, impact the world in a big way. But last I checked, our bank account doesn't have anywhere close to a million dollars in it. And so it's easy for us to ask the question, how much can the little bit that we have accomplish for God? And by the way, I think this is a question that folks ask all over the place. You don't have to be in a small place uh, to feel small. And uh, I suspect that this is something that you will wrestle with if you haven't already, and perhaps even more so when you get out in ministry. So that we might be encouraged, I'd like for us to look at a familiar story in John chapter 6. Matthew's and Mark's Gospels tell us that this happened in a remote place. I like reading this because it reminds us that God works in places like Isabel, South Dakota, and if he works there, surely he can work anywhere. A bunch of folks had come out to hear our Lord, and as the day wears on, verse 5, Jesus becomes concerned about hunger, and so he asks Philip, where can we go to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Philip is from the area, so he would know where the closest grocery store is. At this point, John inserts uh, some commentary. He says in verse 6 that our Lord actually wasn't trying to get the answer to the question that he was asking, but he had asked the question in order to test Philip 
for he himself knew what he would do. So Christ asked the question here because there is a lesson for Philip and for the other disciples and for the crowd and perhaps for us. Philip in verse 7 realizes that there's actually a challenge here that is perhaps even more daunting than not having a grocery store nearby. He does some quick calculations and he realizes that 200 denarii, which would be about 200 days wages, would hardly buy enough bread for everybody to have just a bite or two to eat. So money is in short supply. Any of you starting to relate? When you get out in ministry, uh, you will certainly relate. Then Andrew, another disciple, steps forward with another uh, possible solution. Andrew is also from this area, so we have the two local experts prominent here in the story. In verse 9, Andrew says to Christ, There is a little boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Here's the question of the hour. We don't have much. We have just a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish. How much can the little bit that we have possibly do to solve our dilemma? Jesus in verse 10 in effect says, let me show you. He says, have the people sit down. And then John tells us it was a grassy place. He says the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And uh, if we count women and children, probably easily double that amount. And then verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And he also did the same with the fish. So think about the picture here. One tiny sack lunch. Thousands of people. And our Lord is thanking God for his provision. Can't you just imagine the disciples while our Lord is praying, probably maybe peeking, looking at each other, like, what is going on here? After praying, Christ begins to distribute the food. And as he does so, more and more food becomes available. Until verse 11 tells us that, uh, tells us that everybody had everything that they wanted. And verse 12, when they had all eaten their fill, Christ told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments verse 13, they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Pretty dramatic stuff. So the disciples in the spotlight here, or the disciple in the spotlight, shifts from Philip to, to Andrew. I think Andrew warrants just a bit of commentary. Andrew grew up in the nearby town of Bethsaida 
a town that was so small that it's not found on hardly any maps. Uh, an Isabel kind of town. Nothing noteworthy. History is silent. No one bothered to raise the blinds on the tour bus as it drove through town to look at the historical marker because it didn't exist. And yet this sleepy little town raised up not just one, but three of our Lord's disciples, Philip, Andrew, and Andrew's brother, Peter. So maybe a tiny town can impact the world. Now, not only was Andrew from the middle of nowhere, we would say today, but we also know that he was a fisherman, which means that he was an ordinary working class kind of guy. Any of you from this kind of family? I am. Uh, my dad had very little education. Um, he was a mechanic. And speaking of Peter, Andrew always seems to be in the shadow of his brother. Peter was uh, a stronger personality. He was more outspoken. He was far more comfortable being in front of people. In fact, in several verses, we're told that Andrew was Peter's brother. In fact, we're told that in verse 8 here in the text. Any of you known as someone's brother or sister or maybe son or daughter? I can kind of work on you at times, can't it? All of these things that I've described about this unassuming disciple, I think were used of God to help shape him and develop in him what I think is an outstanding characteristic. Andrew, I think we can see in our story, had an uncanny ability to see small things in a much different way than perhaps lots of folks. We see this characteristic playing itself out in our story. First of all, Andrew sees value in every individual, no matter how insignificant they might seem to be. In our story, he is anxious for a little boy to be used of God. The word in the text indicates that this was a very small boy, probably grade school age. Now, don't answer this out loud, okay? But think about all of the people that you know. Who do you think is the most improbable that God might use of all the people that you know? Of all the people in this crowd, what's the chances that you would pick out this little boy? Back in the 1700s, John Newton was an Andrew kind of guy. Uh, you perhaps know him as a hymn writer, including what is widely considered to be uh, the, the most beloved hymn in the world today, Amazing Grace. You may know that in his pre-Christian days, he was a notorious captain of slave ships. By his own description, a wretch of a sinner, miraculously spared from a harrowing experience at sea, which prompted one of history's most glorious conversions. But what happened then? 
Most people don't know that Newton became a small town pastor, devoting 16 years to the tiny one street town of Olney, England. Now, if you were an outsider, you would probably not see a whole lot that was appealing about Olney. You might even wonder why would a person with Newton's abilities stay in a place like this? But God had given Newton a great love for the people, and he chose to stay, even though he had all kinds of opportunities to go elsewhere. During his tenure at Olney, like Andrew in our text, Newton saw potential in a most improbable person. One day, William Cooper showed up in town. He was what we would today probably think of as a homeless man, a person who struggled to make it in the mainstream of society. A family and only took Cooper in, and by doing so, Cooper became a part of Newton's congregation. I'm guessing that in answer to the question that I asked earlier, the only congregation would have said that Cooper was the most unlikely among them to be used of God. What would you do if William Cooper showed up in your church? Well, Cooper's presence triggered Newton's pastoral graces, and Newton discovered that Cooper had a knack for writing poetry. Long story short, he and Cooper published what became known as the only hymnal. Today we would say this went viral. It's hymns sung literally around the world and even sung to this day. A little boy, a homeless man. Who within our sphere of influence might we similarly value? Maybe it's a young child in your Sunday school class. Uh, maybe it's a, a person with a physical or perhaps other limitation. Maybe it's a quiet or unassuming person like Andrew. Maybe it's a poor person, maybe an older person. Maybe it's a young man who's just been released from prison. We do well to envision how people like these might be used of God and even creatively find ways for them to be used. As you're sitting here listening to this, some of you might be thinking, I might be that kind of person. I find it interesting that years ago, C.J. Rediger, who is the founder of RHMA, I think would have said, that he is the kind of person that I've been describing. I never met Mr. Rediger, but I've gotten to know him through his writings and uh, through other people who did know him. In his writings, he acknowledged that there were several missions who closed the door on him. They did not, they turned down his application. He characterized himself as not being a strong man he was a man with a propensity toward being anxious. He suffered with chronic health issues. I've been told that he was a rather unassuming man. But C.J. Rediger gave himself to God. And God used him to found a mission. 
And that mission launched a movement. And that movement has continued now for 75 years, has impacted countless thousands across the U.S. Maybe God is similarly wanting to use someone here this morning, uh, perhaps in some kind of missions work. So who among us is the most improbable that God might use? Which leads to the second admirable trait. Andrew, being the kind of behind-the-scenes the kind of guy that he was, was uniquely qualified not only to see potential in every individual, but also in what every individual had to offer, no matter how insignificant. In our story, it was a little boy's lunch. By the way, the first miracle in the text here is uh, that this little boy still had a lunch. Think about when you were a kid. Uh, if you'd been listening to someone talk for several hours and you had your lunch sitting beside you, do you think that lunch would survive? <laughs> uh, probably would have eaten your lunch by now. The word that's used here indicates that this was not a man-sized lunch. It contained five small barley loaves. Barley was the poor man's grain. And the word for fish here was used of small fish, probably something like sardines, almost like a relish that you would put on bread. So we're talking thousands of people, and yet somehow Andrew senses that Jesus might use this meager lunch. Don't you love this? Here's the crux of what we're saying this morning. It's not the size of the gift that counts, but it's the greatness of the God to whom the gift is being offered. Some of us might need to take our eyes off of our little boy lunch and focus on the greatness of our God. I'm reminded of a powerful example of this every time I drive through Sulphur Springs, Arkansas. Anybody here from Arkansas? Anybody know where Sulphur Springs is? Almost nobody does. It's a, it's a town so small that it makes uh, Manhattan, Montana look like a metropolis. Um, Sulphur Springs, however, does have a historical marker. Do you have one in Manhattan? Not that you know of. All right. Uh, I stopped and took a picture when I was driving through town last. This tiny town, it turns out, is the birthplace of the Wycliffe Bible Translators Summer Institute of Linguistics. Back in the day, it was called Camp Wycliffe. The building in the background is actually the second location for this summer institute. Uh, the first is about a mile down the road, an old farmhouse that's actually been torn down. And the stones from the marker were actually taken from the foundation of that old farmhouse. Camp Wycliffe was launched on a shoestring during the Great Depression. In the providence of God, back in that day, my wife's grandparents owned a small hardware store in a tiny town just five miles up the road. Her grandparents didn't have a lot. 
but they did provide a few things for Camp Wycliffe, such as nail kegs that uh, were taken from their store, which the students used to sit on in class, so you all can count your blessings. You don't have to sit on nail kegs. Uh, friends of ours recently went to Wycliffe's headquarters in Florida. They visited there. They took a picture of a picture that's hanging on the wall. My wife's grandparents provided the nail kegs for, for Camp Wycliffe. But remember, it's not the size of the gift that matters, but it is the greatness of the God to whom the gift is offered. A boy's sack lunch, a few nail kegs, which leads to the third and climactic observation from our story. Andrew sees the potential of multiplication. He somehow senses that Christ, if he chooses to do so, can take this little boy lunch and multiply it. And this is where things get real exciting. And of course, you know the rest of the story. For John Newton, an eccentric man. For RHMA, an unlikely founder. For Wycliffe, a fledgling linguistics institute in a tiny town. The historical marker, I think, underscores what our text is trying to teach us here this morning. Uh, you probably can't read it, but it says, in part, Summer Institute of Linguistics, held here June 1934. These stones stand as a memorial to God's faithfulness from that small beginning with only two students, two students in the first class, has grown the present institute teaching hundreds of students dedicated to translating the transforming word of God into all languages of the world. Multiplication. Dr. Dwight Pentecost, my, my favorite professor back in my seminary days, hits the nail on the head when he says that while this miracle was performed to satisfy the physical hunger of the crowd, Jesus was primarily instructing the twelve concerning the nature of the ministry for which they were being prepared. The followers of Christ do not have the ability of themselves to meet the spiritual need of people. When they make available what they have to the Lord, the Lord can take it and multiply it and use them to minister to the multitudes. So as we wrap up this morning, I think we do well to ask what this text asks of us. And I want to suggest that it encourages us first to consider what we have. What talents do you have? What resources do you have, big or small? Maybe it's just a little boy lunch. Maybe it's just a nail keg. And then our text encourages us, second, to offer what we have to God unconditionally, with no sense of obligation. Leave it up to him to do what he pleases to do with what we offer to him. When that little boy offered his sack lunch, I don't think he in any way envisioned Christ using that to feed the multitudes. When Roxy's grandparents offered their nail pegs, I don't think they had, I had any idea that uh, they would be used of God to help launch a missionary movement that has spread around the world. 
Our text then thirdly encourages us to invite God to multiply what we have. And who knows? He might do just that. I think that uh, the fact that uh, so little can be accomplished or so much can be accomplished with so little is a testament to the kind of God that we have. So what piddly of little insignificance, small thing, do you have to offer? Years ago, someone asked Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, Dr. Spurgeon, do you think that God is interested in the little things in our lives? To which Spurgeon replied, do you think anything is big to God? So thank God for people like Andrew. Andrew's legacy shows us that when it comes to ministry, little things count. Limited resources, lesser talents, unassuming personalities. So be encouraged if you find yourself being an Andrew kind of person. Let's pray together. Father, we want to close chapel today by just thanking you for the many multifaceted ways that you show your greatness to us. Coming from Illinois, I look at the mountains around here and I just marvel at your greatness. And there are many, many other ways. But Father, we know that a significant way is by taking what we have to offer you and using it to have eternal impact. There's a lot of wonder in that because so many of us sense that we have so little to offer and yet we know that time and again through history you have taken small things and chosen to use them for great impact. Lord, we invite you to do this through us. We want to make ourselves available to you and uh, invite you to work through us in whatever way that you see fit. We pray these things now in the name of Christ. Amen.